Jesus told them this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Father Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that Those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What we have this morning is another difficult parable to understand. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus or the parable of Dives and Lazarus because Dives is the Latin word for rich and Like last week's parable, it raises quite a few questions, Um, this time questions about the nature of the afterlife, life after death, Um, such as, um, can people in hell see what's going on in heaven above? That would seem, if that were the case, to to be pretty cruel. Can can you see what's going up above? Can, Can those who are in heaven speak to those who are down below? His father Abraham there functioning as an intermediary between the two. Most commentators wisely urge us to be cautious. They remind us that, you know, after all, this is a parable. Jesus isn't trying to give us some metaphysical precision as to the nature of the next life. Um, You know, usually parables are stories with one singular meaning, and so you should impress the details too closely, but you know, even with all of those caveats in place, what's described here is pretty chilling stuff. It says that death is not the end. Death ushers every human being into uh, you know, one of two destinies, two branches off of the road that everybody travels, one which is more wonderful than words are able to describe, and the other so terrible Metaphorical language can only approximate its miseries. Death is not the end. These two destinies, these two places um, are irreversible. There's this great chasm that is between the two. You, You can't move from one to the next. 
And these two destinies are the direct consequence of choices which are made in this world while we are still living. I, I say it, it's, it's chilling stuff. Now, I know that most people, um, they're going to say something along the lines of, Jesus, good teacher, I love him for all of his wisdom. But I can't believe in a loving, that a loving God would allow a place of eternal torment. I cannot believe, I will not believe that a good, loving God, a kind deity, would send people to hell. That's, isn't that what most people would say? And my answer to that is, Jesus could. Arguably, the most loving man who ever walked the face of the planet could. He, he says that there's, there's no incompatibility between a God who is loving and the reality of a, a hellish Judgment. Jesus didn't see a contradiction between the two. Um, And I think you, I'm not going to go into it this morning. I think you can make the case that it's actually impossible to to have a God that is truly loving without having an accompanying judgment for all that is wrong and and, and, and wicked and false. You you can't have the the kind of God of love that that people want to have without there actually being a God who who brings hell. There's a scene in the, the movie, uh, the film Titanic, t- Titanic, <laughs> Titanic, when the ship's engineer realizes that the ship is going to sink and nobody else realizes it yet. Eventually he's confronted by Kate Winslet, Rose, and she comes up to him and, and she says, Mr. Andrews, Mr. Andrews, I saw the iceberg and I, and I see it in your eyes. Please tell me the truth, he replies, The ship will sink. In an hour or so, all of this will be at the bottom of the Atlantic. If a warning corresponds to reality, then that warning is kind. It's not, um, it's kind. Jesus isn't trying to ruin our day. He's trying to to save us, to to rescue us. And and I'm not trying to feed into the the well-known stereotype of how Preachers love to preach hellfire and damnation sermons. The two topics that preachers love to speak on the most are money and hell. At least that's both of which are covered in this passage, by the way. (laughs) But if the warning corresponds to reality, then it's kind. It's kindness that speaks it. Well, let's go back and look at some of the details of the parable that he, he gives us. The rich man was fabulously wealthy. Jesus in the parable is playing up how uh, opulent this man is. He's, he's clothed in purple, it says, which, you know, purple, the, the dye um, was very expensive. And any clothes that were dyed in purple, you, you had to be rich to, to afford. And it also, he's clothed in purple and in fine linen, verse 19, which literally the Greek word there refers to his underwear. <laughs> it says that even his underwear was, was you know, fine and silky. And, and it says he feasted sumptuously, sumptuously every day. You know, breakfast at Goldie's downtown in the morning, dinner at Chandler's every, every night. You know, all the while, Lazarus lies at his gate starving and covered with sores. A picture which, quote, 
which conveys the utter disregard of the rich man for the poverty-stricken person living in the shadow of his own opulent self-indulgence. How's that for a quote? Incidentally, the, the name Lazarus is the Greek na- word or name for the Hebrew word Eleazar. Eleazar, when translated, means he whom God helps. Lazarus is the only person in any one of Jesus' parables that's given a proper name. Did you realize that? Like, think about all the other parables that Jesus teaches. Parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Prodigal Son. None of them are named. There's not, a, not a single one is named except for he whom God helps. And at the beginning of the story, the irony is that it doesn't look like God has helped him at all. Um, He's lying there, and this is a really desperate man. He's, He's so sick, he can't walk out onto the street and even beg. Did you notice they had to carry him and and lay him at the gates? You say, well, why is he at the gates? The reason is because the social expectation of a first century little village is that the, I mean, there's no medical clinics, right? There's no social services. There's no social security you can fall back on. The wealthy and well-to-do were, the social expectation was they, they were expected to take care of the truly poor and indigent. And it doesn't get any poorer and more indigent than, than Brother Lazarus. He's starving. He's in such a bad shape that he just longs to eat from the scra- scraps of the master's table, a.k.a. the dog food. Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what the food that fell from the master's table was, was for. And nobody will give him anything. The only compassion he receives is from the dogs. And we think of dogs, remember, we're not talking about Cocker Spaniels. <laughs> think of the wild Australian dingo. <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, wild dogs. Those are the ones that roam around in the first century. And they're the only ones that show him compassion. They're, their moist tongues come and lick his sore-encrusted body. Uh, verse 22. So the two men die. Lazarus is taken up by the angels to Abraham's, literally Abraham's bosom, an image of, of uh, intimacy. He is welcomed into the fellowship of other believers with Father Abraham. While uh, Dives goes down to Hades, which is the part of the grave that is reserved for the wicked. And there in Hades, we, we have this question. The question is, does, he, does the rich man change in hell? Does the rich man change in hell? Has, has the rich man's sense of entitlement and his condescending attitude and, uh, and just ignorance of the poor, has any of that changed? And I, I would suggest to you, it hasn't. The, the rich man never asked for the forgiveness of his sins. In fact, the, the rich man never even acknowledges his sins. Uh, the rich man, he, he's happy to order Lazarus around. Come, my servant boy, come and fetch me what I ask for. He's, uh, he's happy to tell Father Abraham that I got a raw deal in life. I didn't have enough information, Father Abraham. I've got five brothers back up there, and, and they need more information. If I had more information, then, um, then things might have turned out differently for me. I, when you take the picture as a whole, it strongly suggests that the rich man is the same old conceited self, even when he's in hell. And if you've ever read 
C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, you know how Lewis, what Lewis says is that, uh, that hell doesn't make us any better as human beings. We're still every bit as bad as we were on earth, but just take that and extend it for another million years or in eternity and think how bad you will be. That's what he, um, hell doesn't make us better people. We continue on the same trajectory which was already established in this life. One of the popular church architecture designs that is out there, you see it, is common. Um, The Family Life Center. A lot of churches these days will build a multi-purpose gymnasium that can kind of function as a as a, a sanctuary, but also have basketball courts inside of it. And the, the, the Family Life Center, you've got the big kids' play area with the windy slides, and maybe um, uh, you maybe have some soccer fields or football fields around the outside of it, maybe some outdoor basketball courts, certainly a large asphalt parking lot around the buildings. Very common design. I think, have you ever driven by a church and not realized it was a church because you thought it was a, commu- a YMCA or a community center? Very common design. What you will not find in church design today, nobody builds a church with a cemetery surrounding it anymore. Even if you wanted to have a graveyard in your your new church facility, (laughs) planning and zoning is not going to go for that, will they? No, you're not going to get very far. Uh, No, there's church graveyards, church cemeteries uh, on the grounds. No, no. they're not to be found any longer. And I suppose that in most respects, this is a good thing. Churches have decided that they want to focus on sharing the gospel with those who are alive. And uh, they consider that less important than remembering the dead. Where am I going with this? Well, Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the Southern Baptists. And he wrote uh, an article several months back where, where he asks this question. He says, didn't we lose something important when we paved over our graveyards with asphalt? Haven't we lost something important, maybe even biblical, by outsourcing the care of our dead to the funeral industry? Because in the past, as a Christian, you weren't buried under the funeral home tent in Shady Grove Acres Cemetery section uh, number five with all the other people who happened to die at about the same time you did or or bought a plot right beside yours, in the past, you were laid side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ who who, who, uh, laid there waiting together with you for the resurrection of the dead. And every churchgoer, every Sunday, was, was forced to be confronted with the fact that as they walked into the church, um, there were dead bones underneath their feet. The same people who used to have youthful skin with no wrinkles and quick steps and hectic schedules, just like yours, those, those same people, are their bones are, are now dust. And every time you, you walked around the outside of a church building, the church graveyard reminded you, among many other things, of the brevity of our lives. As I was, um, I was driving to church this morning, and I'm a big baseball fan, and Hannah calls me up on the phone, and she's crying, and she says, Do you know, did you hear what happened last night? 
uh, Jose Fernandez. Jose Fernandez, a pitcher for the Miami Marlins, he, he died in a boating accident. Um, and I then start, I feel I want to start crying. I don't know him. Um, Jose Fernandez, he's probably the three, one of the three most talented pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. 24 years, years dies in a boating accident. It, is, it takes your breath away. You know, the Bible is amazing how it speaks to us about the brevity of our lives. How it says to us. It says this. It says, our lives, we are told, are like a mist that appears in the early morning, but as soon as the sun gets up, it dissolves. Our life is like chaff, which is thrown into the air and is blown away by the wind. Our life is like a dream in the night, and in the morning it is long forgotten. Our life is like a sigh, or you know, what we say at uh, funerals. Our life is like the grass of the field, the flowers of the grass and flowers of the field. The wind blows, and its place it remembers no more. What does the Bible say that hell is going to be like? Now, I purposely read the passage um, with a somber tone of voice. One of the reasons I think that people are so resistant to the Christian idea of hell is because they've met too many Christians who were happy about it, you know, who were just like smugly gleeful that if you're not on our side, then we're, we're much too flippant about it. I mean, if this, if this really exists, how awful, how utterly awful, how does the Bible describe what it's going to be like. Immediately, you know, people think of a dungeon, you know, with this uh, torture chamber with a rack and hot irons and, you know, it's the um, Spanish Inquisition, but on steroids. (laughs) And while it's true that fire factors very prominently in the Bible's descriptions, they're metaphorical descriptions, as best I can tell. And curiously, many times the metaphors end up contradicting themselves. So on one hand, we're told that hell is like outer darkness, constant, unending darkness. And then the very next time, or line, it tells us that, that uh, hell is an unending fire. How do you have unending darkness and unending fire? That's, that would be strange. Or it's that hell is like a flame that does not go out, but it's also a fire that does not consume. How does such a flame and fire exist. I don't know. I think it's very hard to define precisely what the, the, mes- the miseries of hell are, are, are exactly uh, to be. But the safest way I thought of, and I've heard categorizing hell, the safest way to describe it is, is hell is a place where, where there is no good and pure, there is no good, pure, right, lovely, admirable, because those are all traits of God, are they not? And hell is a place where there is no God. There's no love or peace or virtue or joy or compassion. None of that is there because nothing of God is there. Hell is a... If I, how about I put it this way, uh, a simple kind of illustration. If you were born and raised in a cave, let's say the cave that you were raised in was 
was always about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And then one day, some missionary comes to you and, and tells you about the sun. Did you realize there's this thing out there called the sun? And you reply, the sun, I don't believe in a sun. I've never seen a sun. I've never felt the sun. Nobody's ever proved to me the existence of a sun. Hey, buddy, the sun that you don't believe in, the sun that you don't acknowledge, if it were to burn out, your little comfy cave is going to be 400 degrees below zero. That celestial body up in the sky that, that you think nothing of or deny that it even exists, that is what's keeping your cave warm and you alive. And in the same way, the person who says, I don't believe in God, what they don't realize is that the, the only reason there's any love or goodness or decency on this earth is because those all come from, from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. In, that, in, the, in, uh, in thy face is the fullness of joy. The presence of God is the source of all of that. And the reason the hell is so terrible is not because it's so hot. It's so fiery. It's because the presence of God is entirely removed. Verse 25. Why is this rich man in hell? When you first read Abraham's reply in verse 25, he makes it sound like the reason he's in hell is because he's rich. <laughs> remember, he says, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. It sounds like that the rich go to hell and the poor, poor go to heaven and it's just a complete reversal. Why, um, why is that not a very good answer? Why doesn't that not work? Uh, Because Abraham was a pretty rich guy, wasn't he? Abraham was so fabulously wealthy that he he had his own personal army. That's that's pretty rich. No, the reason he is in hell, you have to go back to last week's sermon. We covered the parable of the unjust steward. And I maintained, said it was a hard passage, but the, the steward, the manager was a crook. The only good thing he can do is he can teach us what money is for. Money is for making eternal friendships. The rich man in this story should have used his money to make friends for himself so that he would have been welcomed into eternal dwellings, is what Jesus says early in the chapter. He should have made a friend of the poor beggar who sat at his gate. And you think about it, it wouldn't have taken a whole lot of uh, sacrifice on his part to make a friend with Lazarus. He would not have had to sacrifice a whole lot of his standard of living in order to make a friend with the beggar at his gates. Brothers and sisters, this parable is clearly teaching we must not ignore the beggar at our gates. That is not an option for followers of Jesus Christ. Lazarus, he's He's here. <laughs> Even in Boise, uh, as nice as Lazarus is here, and and we cannot, we cannot ignore him, even when we are not responsible for his condition necessarily. We are responsible to help the poor. We must not ignore the beggar at our gates. That's the first thing the parable teaches. The second is we we must heed. Moses and the prophets. We must not ignore the beggar at our gates. We must heed Moses and the prophets. Um, I, I came across what I thought was a pretty novel interpretation of this parable this week. And it might be 
for some of our tastes, a little too allegorical in the, the way that it, but I, I think there may be something to it. We read that the rich man is dressed in purple. Who else in the Bible is, is clad in a purple garment? Uh, the priests. The priests, the robe and the ephod of the priests was purple. The rich man, according to this interpretation, represents the priesthood which has been rejected by God. In the days of Jesus, the priesthood was so corrupt, it is rejected by God. It has been sort of cast into hell. They have rejected the message of Messiah and his band of Lazarus outcasts. They've completely ignored him. Who are the five brothers in the story? The five brothers are the scribes and the Pharisees who should have heeded Moses and the prophets. The scribes and the Pharisees should have read their their Gideon Bible. They were given their Old Testament. They should have seen all that was pointing to Jesus. The priesthood has died and been rejected. The scribes and the Pharisees have failed to heed. And their hard-heartedness, all of their hard-heartedness, is so complete that even if a guy rises from the dead, they won't believe in him. Which is exactly which comes to pass. Do people get a second chance? Do, um, do we get reincarnated and then in the next installment of our lives, we get to go back and do it over again? Maybe I wasn't very generous to the poor in this life, but that's okay because, you know, the next life, if I'm, if I'm not a wildebeest, then <laughs> in the next life, I'll do it better. I'll, I'll be generous and I'll be kind. Is that, is that what, um, is there, is there such a thing as a post-mortem Second chance. And Christianity has historically answered that in the negative. No, there's not. It's said that our destinies are determined by what we do with Moses and the prophets. And how they point us to Jesus Christ. How we respond respond to their message. It is so important that we get things sorted out in this life. Because there's, there's there's no going back. There's no second chance. Over the... The gates of hell are written two words, too late. It's too late. Okay, lastly, I'm going to conclude here. Why did Jesus Christ, uh, why did Jesus Christ speak so often and so much about hell? Most of you who have been reading your Bibles for a long time, um, you know that Jesus talks about hell more than um, and anybody else, in all of, you take all the other characters in the Bible and you count up the number of times they talk about hell and you put them all in a pot. Jesus talks about hell like 10 times more than all of the rest combined. Why does he talk so much about hell? And I hope you already know the answer. The answer is because he was going there. He was, go- he, he was going to hell. He was going to take our place in hell. This, friends, is the great doctrine of the atonement. We believe that on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly subjects himself to the punishment that was due us sinners and willingly experiences God-forsakenness on the cross. If you've been paying attention to the sermon, you know that that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the cry of hell. Hell is the absence of God. Hell is pure God-forsakenness. And what he is doing is crying as a man who is under the wrath of God in hell. 
I think that's the reason why Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. He wanted his, his disciples to know in advance that what he was going to endure on their behalf. And if they understood what he was going to do, uh, then they would truly appreciate how deep is his love. You know, you only understand how much God loves you by seeing what it costs the Son of God in, in order to save you. you know, Jesus paid it all, um, and that's a pretty incredible statement. If you think about, uh, does anybody get out of hell? How long do you stay in hell? The answer is, at least according to the Bible, eternally. If Jesus paid it all, then there's no more hell to pay. In other words, something so mind-boggling happened on the cross, he paid something that was greater than than a human being's eternity in hell. Somehow he fulfilled that payment, whatever that could be. He paid it all, and it means that there's no hell left to pay. No no God-forsakenness, no freezing caves. And friends, hell is not necessary. Nobody, you don't have to go to hell. People quip about how I want to go. All my friends are there. No, you don't. You don't have to go to hell. Hell is, uh, you only go to hell willingly. Hell is the place where those who want to get away from God finally succeed. Hell is the place for those who want to get away from God, they finally succeed. But brothers and sisters, there are better things for us. Jesus paid it all. He, he bore completely our sin, demonstrating what amazing love. How, amazing love. And we're going to sing it during the passing of the bread in just a minute. How Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should, should go to hell for me? Amazing stuff. Chilling stuff. Is it? It is. Amen.